I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. Our guest for this episode is Nevin Essex. Nevin is a piano technician and tuner, a master at his craft, who's been practicing and perfecting his technique and ability for nearly 40 years. Nevin works out of his workshop in Cincinnati, but he travels a lot as well. He spends part of his time tuning grand pianos, some for performances and concerts, others for recitals and institutional or educational use. And the rest of his time, he spends restoring and repairing pianos. His work is about creating a canvas for others to paint on, working with an instrument to create the perfect conditions for others to create their art. If you want to put it this way, he sees himself as a servant of the art and of the other artist. But make no mistake, there's no shortage of artistry in what Nevin does, no shortage of creativity, and certainly no lack of beauty. Nevin and I met on a Tuesday afternoon at Urban Artifact, a local craft brewery in Northside, Cincinnati. We talked about craftsmanship, how a craftsman develops his technique and skill, and how someone finds this particular kind of work, what type of person is suited to this solitary work that requires deep focus and concentration. As you'll hear, Nevin is a quiet, thoughtful person. This isn't a loud conversation. This is two people huddled in a booth in a corner of a bar over good drinks, talking about things that matter in their lives. It's exactly the kind of conversations I'd hoped this podcast would be about. So here is piano technician Nevin Essex on The Distiller. Nevin, thank you, first of all, for joining me here today. Sure, yeah. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, uh-huh. A lovely, what is today, Tuesday afternoon at uh-huh. Urban Artifact and some some drinks to come. So oh, good. I'm going to attempt to describe a little bit um, what you do, but ultimately that's kind of that's why you're here. But you are uh, a piano technician. I am. And... Mm-hmm. Tuner, and I think a lot of, a lot goes in under the heading of technician. That's that right. Tuner is an oversimplification. That's right. We we do a lot of restoring old pianos, okay. and bringing pianos up to snuff or uh, up to spec, mm-hmm. and trying to make pianos uh, sound beautiful and play well. Okay. And what kind of, do you work on? All pianos? Do you only work on giant concert grands? Or well, the older I get, the less I have to work in basements on spinets. <laughs> uh huh. Um, I do mostly grand pianos now, okay. and and uh, quite a bit of it is either on stage or in teaching studios. Okay, um, but I occasionally still do the the spin it in the basement. Yeah, although I try to get out of it. Try to avoid that. Yeah. How at the very beginning? Let's go back to the start. Mm-hmm. How do you get into this work? This is a really neat and really specific type of work. Well, when I started, that was in the 1970s. And I went to a trade school. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were several trade schools at that time. I think there might be one left in Boston. Okay. Um, you don't have to do that. In fact, not everybody can go to a trade school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I teach now, and people come to me for tuning lessons, which is a good way to get started. Okay. If you can learn to tune, mm-hmm. you can get started working on pianos. Um, I, I uh, gosh, how did I do it? I, yeah, went, I, mean, to this, I went to the trade school. Um, what, what was your first, how do you even get to the point where you say, I want to go to trade school to study this? Well, when that was, was a total whim. I, I had no plans. Okay. I just made my mind up within seconds. Based on what? Nothing. 
<laughs> you just thought this is the a friend of mine walked in and said, "Look at this brochure. It has band instrument repair. I'm going to go." And I said, I "Oh, that. I'll go with you." That's great. So that's what I did. Okay. And I haven't looked back. I mean, I mean, I look back all the time, but but I I haven't uh, been able to to get out of it. <laughs> where 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 was the school that you went to? In Iowa. Okay. Yeah, and they had they had uh, meat cutting and swine production and piano tuning. Well, of course they did. Yeah. Of course those go together. <laughs> where where in Iowa? Sioux City. Okay. Sioux City. And, and you were from Cincinnati originally? I was from Cincinnati. I uh, I, I lived in southern Indiana. Okay. Um, I was born in northern Indiana. I lived in actually Lebanon, Ohio. Okay. When, when I was a uh, high school. Kid. For those not around here, about 40 minutes north of Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah it's a small town nearby. Mm-hmm. I graduated from high school there. Okay. And then I went to Indiana U at right. Bloomington. Yep. And over the years, I've attended several other universities, just depending on where I was working. Mm-hmm. By the time I was about um, my second year of school, I knew that I wasn't going to be a psychiatrist. So uh, I kept going in and out of school after that. All right. And uh, mostly I would work somewhere. Mm-hmm. I worked in Louisville. I worked in Lexington. worked in Cincinnati. And wherever I was, I would take classes. Okay. And so I'm still doing that. I'm mm-hmm. still doing that. I'm ready, almost ready to retire, but I'm still taking classes. Ready for your second, <laughs> right. for your second act. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know what for, but I'm doing it. Well, so you were Can't 19 stop. or 20-ish? Yeah. When uh-huh. you left Absolutely. Bloomington or wherever you were at the time to go to Sioux City? Yeah, I had done two years of university. Okay. And then went out to trade school. Then I came back and started right back at How university How long did trade classes. school take? I don't think I was there for even a year. Okay. The, the the course was either one year or two years, right. depending on how deep you wanted to go. And I think that's still the way they do it in Boston. The, the Bennett Street School in Boston has a two-year program. Okay. And you can go to one year or two years. And it seems, maybe this is stuff we'll get into, I mean, it seems like what you do, from what I understand of it, is sort of equal parts technique and ability, if you want to put it that way. you got to have some ear. There are indeed people who can't get it. Okay. They just don't have it. Mm-hmm. And I used to think I could teach anybody. Uh-huh. Anybody could learn to do this. If I can learn it, anybody can learn it. But it wasn't true. Not so much. <laughs> it wasn't true. There are people who just couldn't get it. They either didn't have enough musical background. They didn't know what intervals were. Mm-hmm. They couldn't tell one tone from another. They just couldn't get started. Yep. It doesn't mean they weren't smart people. They yeah, just, but just didn't have any musical yeah. experience. And then I've had people with degrees in music who couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't hear anything. Interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. Um, and then, and then some of the well, some of the worst students of all were engineers. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the best students uh, might be band directors or uh, preachers, ministers. Do it. Uh, a lot of people who have other part-time careers try it because they think it sounds like a nice supplement right. to their work. But then they a lot of a lot of them realize it's really what they would rather do full time. And they, they go well, full-time. am I right about that? That there's a that there's a technical component. You have to know how the yeah, piano yep. works. You have to know how to adjust things. But then there's also you have to know when it sounds right. Well, you you learn if you have any musical background at all. If you you sing in a choir or play in a band or something like that, you can you, you have enough music. Mm-hmm. You you can sing a scale, these kinds of things. That's enough music to learn to tune. Um, and then the rest of it is uh, is mechanical. It's right. using tools, um, 
using your hands. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of finesse in, in, in the work that you do with your hands. Is the, so when you went to Sioux City, were you primarily learning to tune or were you learning the whole technician arsenal of skills? They did both at Thank the you, same sir. time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Drinks have been delivered. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> you, your, your beer, my coffee. Exactly. All right. We'll mix it up. This is my beer. They were, they were doing tuning lessons every day mm -hmm. and technical lessons every day. Okay. And then a lot of practice time. A lot of this is practice. Yeah. You have to get it in your hands. Is there an apprenticeship for something like this? Well, I did some of that. I, when I went to Louisville, I apprenticed mm -hmm. with a, a German piano technician named Hans. I still know Hans. We still work together sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and in school, there were teachers, and they would give lessons, and we would, you know, a tuning lesson was, you know, about 10 minutes. Right. But if you have 10 minutes a day, that adds up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there were a lot of good people there. I still know some of the people I knew in school in the is 1970s. It a, is it a tight community of it is. people that know what you know? It is. We all go to the same conventions. We all see each other every year. Um, so you start out, you get out of school, out of trade school, you go immediately to work? Put your shingle out and say, I am a, I am a piano technician? In or? those days, I went, I went to work before I got out of school. Okay. I, I left school to start working. Okay. Um, I might have been the first one in my class to get a job. Mm -hmm. I went to work in the piano factory. Okay. And, uh, and not long after that, I went to work as an apprentice and a working apprentice working in the shop and yep. and uh, learning what the technician was teaching me and by that time I was tuning you know at an elementary level and I could go out and tune spinets and basements mm -hmm. and I got a lot of practice that way so yeah there there are lots of different paths um, not too many people walked out of school into a good job Okay. You kind of have to build up to that because it takes it right. takes a few years of practice to get good, and we don't have a good apprenticeship program in this country, so it's fake it till you make it. Yep. And uh, that's what I did. I faked it till I made it. Uh, making it is also something that you really can't def define. You right. can't put what your finger that on that either. Your, yeah, in your right. industry. Right. It, but I mean, you keep busy. It's mm -hmm. steady work, or as busy as you want to be. We, after a while, after about. 10 or 15 years, you get so busy, you can't do all the work. Okay. And you start choosing great kinds of work you want to do. So tell me a little bit about how the work breaks down between tuning and restoration and whatever else fits under the heading of a, of a technician. Mm -hmm. Well, I have, right now I have three contracts. Mm -hmm. I have a university job, full-time job. Mm -hmm. It's actually... Most most university jobs are staff jobs, right? And you're on paid hourly, and um, and your job is to do whatever the pianos need. So you do all kinds of things at a university. You're always fixing broken things and replacing parts, and and voicing and regulating actions. And what what school is this? The one I'm working at now is it's uh, it's called the Blair School of Music. It's part of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. And, and for instance, just so I'm sort of building my understanding, how many instruments does the Blair School of Music have? They have about 110. So there's always something, oh, there's never something that doesn't need. That's right. We have work. to look at 110 pianos and figure out what's most important. Okay. What and needs who, to be done this who week. Who determines that? I do. 
Okay. Do you have people that would sort of work under you I and have, help you? There are, there are a couple of tuners who I, I can um, contract to, okay. to do. I think it's the same thing at the at Cincinnati, at CCM. They mm-hmm. they have two technicians and I think one hourly additional technician. Okay. Um, and so I have 110 pianos at Blair. I'm kind of new at that job. I'm still getting my mind around how, you know, what everything looks like. Um, they had a good technician before me, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of visible repair work already done. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I even got there, I was getting requests to do things. Uh, you know, one request that I'm going to be your first job when you get here. Okay, <laughs> so, they were ready for you, right? And that's, I mean, Nashville's four and a half hours from here. So are you traveling down there? I, I live down there. Uh, about three or four days a week. Okay, and and I can bring work home here and work on it here. How how does that work in the car? I just bring an action with me and work on it at home. Homework. Describe what you just said. Bring bring what? Well, what the, part the, of the, the piano? internal part of the uh, piano that, that you play the keys mm-hmm. and the hammers. That's called an action, and it slides right out of the piano. Okay, and I put it right in my car. That's fantastic. And I can I can drive it up here, and I have a shop in my barn. Mm-hmm. And I can do all kinds of things to it there. Then I take it back to Nashville and put it in the piano. That's great. And uh, how, how close do you have to do fine tuning, or when you put it in, is it ready as long as oh, it's ready? Oh, there's usually a, a day of work in the piano. Okay. After you've done something outside the piano. Yep. But if you put new parts in, that's that's par for the course. So the keys. I'm not a pianist. I'm a guitar mm-hmm. player. Uh-huh. So, so uh, I've been around a lot of pianos. <laughs> so the the action which is the keys and the hammers, mm-hmm. are independent of the strings, but basically you slide those in, yeah. and then they hit the strings, but the two are not necessarily attached in any they're, they're not, way. They're just pinned down. The action is just pinned down in there okay. and held in place. All right. And, uh, yeah, you can slide it out like a drawer uh-huh. and carry it, carry it out the door. And you bring something up, and generally when you do that, you're replacing things, or you're just fine-tuning things, or some combination of... Well, if I'm not replacing parts, there's no point in taking it out of the building. Okay. So the, a lot of the work that we do is in the piano, mm-hmm. uh, adjusting the action uh, so that it plays um, according to design, yeah. um, or better, and uh, according to the pianist's requests. Right. Um, we, we do a lot of regulating or touch weight work which is you know how how hard do you have to push these keys to get them to go down and is that a particular taste of the pianist yeah some pianists like a light action some like a heavy action some like could could be anything some like a loud mm-hmm. metallic sound some like a a, a warm uh, cotton sound mm-hmm. and that's my job is to make their piano suit them when you're working in a music department where a hundred people are going to play this piano over the next couple of days or before you get to it next, what are you striving for in terms of, are you just going for your ear or are you, is there a middle point? Uh, well, yeah, you might call it vanilla <laughs> uh, or factory. Yeah, lowest fact, common denominator. Factory specs, kind of average. Okay. But believe it or not, average is a pretty good place to go. Okay. Um, what what we don't want are outliers. Mm-hmm. We don't want a piano that's louder than all the others, or softer than all the others, right. or heavier or lighter than all the others. Huh. We we strive to make things average, and and uh, piano makers have refined and refined and refined their products until uh, they virtually use 
almost the same parts now, mm -hmm. and certainly very close to the same specifications, mm -hmm. and uh, are striving for the same kind of tone and the same kind of touch. So, uh, they, they, their claims to fame, their, their competitive advantage, a lot of it is in their service departments, mm. and a lot of it is in how long they expect their pianos to last or how much they're worth. But if you put one good piano next to the other, they're hard to tell them apart similar. if you didn't couldn't see them. So a Baldwin and a Steinway next to each other, or a whatever. If they're all serviced, yeah, yep. the, the Japanese pianos. If they're all serviced to the point where they're um, as good as they can be, you about have to look at the name board. Tell them apart. In uh, in guitars, I can tell you what the difference is between a five hundred dollar guitar and a thousand dollar guitar and a ten thousand dollar guitar. And there's greater difference between the five hundred dollar guitar and the thousand dollar guitar than there is between the thousand dollar guitar and the ten thousand dollar. Yeah, but all pianos are more than twenty thousand dollars now. Well, right, and that's what I was going to say <laughs> is what is the difference between what somebody might buy to put. Uh, you know, in their in their living room, a baby grand or something like that, who doesn't have that money and yeah. whatever is an amazing. Well, I'm a lucky guy because I I really get to work on good pianos all the time now, mm. but the the exception to what I just said about pianos being the same is when they get old. Mm. Um, it's a fairly recent phenomenon that good pianos are very much alike. Um, old pianos could be anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and they get worn out, and they sound terrible when they're worn out, or when the parts are worn out. And uh, that's more about the parts than it is about the. Well, what do you what do you the call the case, shell? The, the case, case of the okay. piano is is all part of it. Mm -hmm. There were lots of bad pianos made. They're just all gone now. Okay. There are, aren't really last. any good any bad pianos being manufactured <laughs> right now. Okay. Yeah, they just age out over time. Well, that and, and make, they, can't, they don't sell any. So right, right. Those are, they're all out of business. Does a piano uh, open up over time? Does the case of a piano open up? There are people who would say that. My, and what I mean by that for the listener is a guitar, a guitar the wood in a guitar over time, a 50-year-old guitar sounds beautiful and warm and open in a way that a brand new guitar doesn't because the wood hasn't aged and opened up yet. I don't know if that's true of pianos. Uh, like I said, there are there are people who believe that, mm -hmm. um, but I think that in general, um, it really has a lot more to do with um, how well it's built uh -huh. and how well it's serviced. Okay. An old piano can sound great, but most of them don't. Okay. Um, it, I would say that it's probably not true that old pianos sound better than new ones, although there are some eras where great pianos were made mm -hmm. more often, like the... 1920s, 30s with Steinway, those were great pianos. The 1950s and 60s were bald ones, those were great pianos. What made them great at the time? I'd have to say it's a little bit of everything. Okay. Um, I, I can't really put my finger on one thing. I can say that um, good hardwood rims mm -hmm. are important, but there are pianos made of soft wood. Mm -hmm. Bosendorfers are made of spruce. They're great pianos. Huh. Steinways are made of hard maple, and they're great pianos. Yeah. It's a different different theory of piano making. Okay. Um, but it's really a hard question to answer about what makes a great piano. Mm -hmm. um, 
but everything has to be right. Yeah. You have to have a, a, a piano that's built well to its design, has a good design, mm-hmm. um, and a serviced well. Um, of course, on my end, you know, the service end, that's what I see mostly. Right. I see lots of pianos that aren't serviced as well as they just have been taken care of. And yeah. 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 They they get played hard for many years. The hammers get flat. They get tinny sounding, and mm-hmm. and the action kind of sags and doesn't play as well as it could. And yeah. And you know, there are really, I mean, there are lots of old pianos out there that can't be very good they just can't be made don't good. have what it takes to be yep. very good but most of the ones being made today can be used just about anywhere okay with a few exceptions but not uh, many describe a little bit the relationship so there is that world where you're just trying to get that middle point because a number of people are going to play this and then there's the time where you're where you're either working on a piano for a pianist or you're setting up or tuning a piano for somebody who's come in to play a show and wants a particular thing? Well, I think what you're asking has to do with the difference between, say, a piano in a teaching studio mm-hmm. where the teacher teaches trombone right, and the piano on stage that's playing with an orchestra. Yep. Th- those are pretty different. Um, the trombone studio piano has to be in tune, it has to be uh, a warm tone, it has to be a clean tone, but it doesn't have to be bright and singing, it doesn't have to be special in any right. way, it, in it fact, can you be... kind of don't want it special. You don't, really don't want it to be special. Um, the touch weight can be just about anything because it doesn't get played that much. Mm-hmm. In fact, the musicians, uh, the instrumental studios are kind of the last priority because they get used the least. They yeah. get used mostly at the end of the semester when their jury's coming up. Right. But the first half of the semester. Are you even touching those or is that just not? not I do them. Put, I tune do. them. Okay. I have to tune everything okay. after the weather changes. Yeah. Um, but I don't go back and make sure they're in tune every two weeks. Right. But the piano teacher's studio, the pianist is. That's who I work for. I take my cues from the pianist, and I have to make the pianist happy. Mm-hmm. That's my job. Um, so that could be anything. And pianists want widely different things out of their pianos. A piano on stage has to be heard above an orchestra, mm-hmm. and that's not easy. And we often make those pianos brighter, stronger than sounds good on stage because you're not just hearing that yeah Yeah. some houses are so live that we don't make them too bright because they could sound ugly from the house right right Um, but part of my job is to sit and listen to the rehearsals okay so that I know what the thing sounds like from a distance right Um, but in general if a piano is going to be played with an orchestra the player wants it as strong as they can get it okay and uh, they want to be heard yeah, that's right. You you said on your website, I was reading through there, and you said one of the things about that relationship, and the, and maybe it's not in that setting, maybe it's more in a one-on-one setting, is finding out what they really want. And I think specifically you said, you know, I'll ask the pianist a hundred questions. Mm-hmm. What are those questions? Like, what do you, how do you get that other than what you pick up from just listening? 
how do you get a sense of what they're really looking for? Well, first of all, you can look at the pianist. And um, if you've ever seen Garrick Olson, he's about six foot six and weighs about 275 pounds. And he's not going to have a light touch he's particularly. Not gonna, he's, <laughs> he, it's altogether different from my wife, who's five foot one and weighs 120. Yeah. Um, it's a whole different thing. And yeah. now Garrick Olson plays a Bosendorfer. And um, Bosendorfer has a very sensitive, um, brilliant sound. But he, believe it or not, he's a very sensitive player. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know why I would say believe it or not. He's pretty well known. Um, but a lot of times, a big guy with lots of muscular tendencies, or even even, you know, even a young woman who plays with lots of verve mm -hmm. is is going to want a, a different sound from a, a very delicate, right? Um, a harder touch, a little something that yeah, requires okay. you to pull the pull the sound out of it a little bit more. Well, probably the biggest difference would be um, that if a piano is so bright that you, when you play it hard, it sounds ugly. Mm -hmm. Brass. That maybe. becomes a problem. Yeah. If, it, if, if the player isn't going to play real hard, then you can make it really bright and singing. The piano, the sound jumps out of the instrument. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that would be, that's typically somebody who plays at home more than on stage. On stage, stage players play with lots of muscle. Yeah. Usually. And, and uh, you can make, you have to make the piano strong for them, but you don't want to make it tinny. Right. You have to make it, it sounds ugly. to that. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, you know, there are a million different things to consider. Yeah, I mean, it's some of the things that I learned over, I spent a, a few years tour managing bands with pianists mm -hmm. in them. And um, I mean, one of the things you think about is a, is a piano is essentially a percussion instrument. Yeah. In uh -huh. terms of how the sound is made. Uh -huh. It's not a strummed instrument. Right, right. Those it's are hammers. hammers yeah. yeah, hitting the instrument. And, and generally stringed, in my experience, all stringed instruments sound best with the lightest touch. Um, that's a that's a, a broad statement. But You're talking about stringed instruments you can hold in your hands. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. I'm not going anywhere with a question. Pianos I'm weigh 900 about, pounds. <laughs> right. I'm just thinking about <laughs> the dynamics of how you achieve what you're looking for and the number of factors that you sort of have to take into account in order to, to get something that's that's at a desirable state for the pianist. Well, I really have to take it case by case. Mm -hmm. um, and, and pianists can be so different that I really have to, to enter into the relationship with an open mind because I can hear anything, anything and everything. Mm -hmm. um, there's no rule. Yeah. Uh, I can generalize a little bit, but... Um, it's very difficult to say anything for sure. Well, and I've got to imagine that a certain a certain amount of your job is of success in your job has nothing to do with your skill on the piano and has everything to do with your skill as psychologist and mediator and in that conversation with the ego behind the fingers like there's just got to be some difficult folks that you deal with absolutely uh, but it does take both yeah. I, I do have to be able to certainly do the work. yeah certainly and and i also have to be able to 
manage the situation. Yeah. Um, I, I have people who tell me that the tones is squidgy <laughs> or, or squeezed. Uh-huh. Like that was a recent one. His tone sounds squeezed. Squeezed. Well, I can't just throw my hands up in the air and say, well, I don't know what that means. Yeah. I have to go find out what it means. I have to go talk to the player. I have to go listen to the piano. I have to figure out what they're talking about. Then I have to be able to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, you know, a certain amount of uh, what you might call magic. People tell me, just go work your magic. And what they mean is, do what you do best. Right. And then we'll talk. Because um, no two people like exactly the same thing. Do you, I would assume that you develop relationships with pianists over time. Yeah. That there's mm-hmm. a trust factor there and they know that you know what they want. There's that. There's that trust factor that develops over time. But there's also a life cycle of goodwill. Hmm. You can develop a trust factor with people. They trust you. They, they learn to trust you, which takes time. And then you do all kinds of things for them and they love what you do or they don't. And, and they get used to it. And then things start to fade, and it's not always true, but sometimes things start to fade, and they start to get a little bit tense and a little bit frustrated. They, want, they either want something that I can't give, or, or I lose fo- my focus and don't give them what they want, or something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it takes a year or two, sometimes it takes 20 years. But it's not uncommon for people to trade and trade me in for somebody else. Yeah. That happens, you know, they often back, enough. Come back around. Yeah. Eventually. I'm their hero for a while and then I'm the villain. Right. And I, I don't like that. I don't like being the villain, but um, I do the best I can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, so how much of, I, I'm not sure if I asked this before or not, but like between the tuning and the, and the full on sort of restoration work, what's the breakdown there of your time? Of my time, yeah. Um, I I would say probably half and half. Okay. I probably do spend half of my time tuning. I go in to work in the mornings, and I I probably tune three instruments, which at a university is about half your day. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on the road, if you're going from customer's house to, to house, that's a whole day. Yeah, I mean, three or four is a whole day. Travel time. You spend an hour driving for each right. one, mm-hmm. but. But at a university, you, you really have to have, have to be a little bit toughened up to do all that tuning, which I am by now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it requires a great deal of concentration and to maintain that focus. Yeah, yeah. For that concentration long. is hard. Sometimes I end up looking out the window instead of working. But uh, yeah, you really have to focus, and you have to have a technique uh, that doesn't wear you out. Uh-huh. You have to be able to tune for a long period of time without tiring yourself. Tiring yourself out and be, for somebody that's never seen a piano tune, what are the aspects of it? Is it mentally fatiguing? Is it what are the things that wear out? A lot of tuners' shoulders wear out. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known a lot of people who had to quit when they get to be sixty something because mm-hmm. they have frozen shoulder or elbows hurt. Because if you haven't seen a piano tuned, a grand piano, you have a large. What's the lever called? You have a lever which. It's called a lever. Well, historically, it's called a tuning hammer. Okay. But that's because tuning levers for harpsichords are hammers. Okay. They, they, 
they tune it. and hammer with them at the same time. Uh-huh. But with a piano, there's no hammering. It's just a lever. But it, it's about anywhere from you know 10 to 14 inches long, mm-hmm. and you really have to torque. You have a yeah. You have to pull pretty hard on it to, to especially if a piano is flat, flatter than normal, and the tuning pins are tight. You mm-hmm. really have to crank it, and you you can you can wear your your arm out yep. after 30 or 40 years and of that. 88 keys, three strings per key. How many? How three, many? St- three on most of them, and three. two and one on the right, some right. of them. How many uh-huh. strings is that total that you have? Two hundred plus two hundred twenty. Okay. Average. All right. Um, so, yeah, 88 keys. No right. shortage of work. No, no. There, and you, if you go full steam ahead, mm-hmm. you get done in about an hour. Okay. Um, if the piano is just tuned that morning, you can get done in 15 or 20 minutes. Right. I do a lot of work like that, orchestra okay. work. Um, just topping it off. Tune the piano in the morning and come back in the afternoon and right. tune it again. It's really not a tuning. It's just a check, touch up the tuning and make yeah. sure that nobody dropped anything in the piano and right. that it still plays. And it, and it settles over time and you've, tu- you've put it, I, I remember when we would load into a show have the piano tuned when it's loaded in and then you'd have the piano tuned after sound check and right, right. before the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the cold weather, if, if you're moving pianos around on a truck, right. the cold weather and Con- then... And things then, contract and expand. And being inside one after the other, that, that's difficult. Or on stage under the lights yeah. can make a piano go flat. Um, so we have to watch those things. And it, sometimes it takes a while to convince the people who are hiring you that that's important. That it takes that much time. Yeah. yeah. And once they've heard a piano on stage during a performance sound out of tune, they start to get the point. Yeah. That you really do have to work hard at keeping it in tune right. for the show. Right. Um, I, one good point on, on that subject is I, I uh, came in to work on pianos for an orchestra after the summer, mm-hmm. just recently, and the pianos were. I had two pianos that were both really sharp from the humidity. So I knew this was going to be an issue, so I, I let the pitch, the pitch down and played the piano for a while, came back eight hours later and did it again. Because mm-hmm. if you don't do that, if you don't have those repeated tunings, yep. no piano is going to stand to it. Nobody's tuning is going to be stable. Yep. So you really have to do that. And, and for an orchestra performance, they're tuned before each rehearsal and each performance. Yeah. And, and hopefully you have enough rehearsals to get those repeated tunings in. Right. To make sure that it's going to be stable for the show. Does uh, just playing a piano in that situation where the humidity and the temperature have caused it to go to a place that you're trying to bring it back from, um, with a guitar, the action of playing the strings stretches the strings and brings the yes. guitar eventually into into where it's going to settle into whatever that that stable state right. is. Right. Okay. That's that's the answer is yes. Okay. Playing it shakes it, rattles it, vibrates so it into. It, if it's going to go out of tune, it'll go out of tune when you're playing it. Right. Even if it, you know you can tune a piano and make it beautiful, and then the weather changes and it'll stay uh-huh. until somebody plays it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it right. <goes> One song <laughs> in. Right. Everything's wrecked. Right. So you really have to do those repeated tunings for yeah. performance situation like that. Yeah. There's no substitute for that. Gotcha. You can bang on it all you want, but there's nothing like a Rachmaninoff to knock a piano out of tune. 
I was, I had the pleasure of being recently out at your workshop at your home just uh -huh. for a minute, and you showed me uh, a box of hammers that you had, I don't know what they were for, but there was just a, a, a box of hammers there that you opened up, a very delicate. A new set. Yeah, a brand uh -huh. new set. So the hammers, the hammers are the parts that, that, the, that the keys cause to contact the strings. That's what strikes the string, that's right. Piano hammers are these really beautiful carved wood little, I mean, it was lovely. Like yeah. when you open that box up, they're wrapped in tissue. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that was a lovely thing to see. Uh -huh. And uh, it, it just, to me at that moment, it spoke to the craftsmanship and the workmanship that you get involved. Tuning's one thing. And it is a beautiful, beautiful art. But the idea of restoring a piano. There's a lot of satisfaction in that. Yeah. yeah. And, and when we get those hammers, mm -hmm. those are blanks. So we have to drill the holes in them. Okay. And cut the coves okay. in them. And taper the sides. And shape the tails. And, do, and glue them on. Right. And all that stuff. So there's so much craftsmanship to be done. You don't just, you don't just take those and, and slap them into place. There's no, a lot don't. of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, and once they're in the piano, then the weather changes and it'll change, you know, everything changes again and uh -huh. you have to do it again. And, uh, but that's, that's the kind of work we love, you know, yeah. that's, that's what I love to do. Well, yeah. Th so that, that craftsmanship aspect of it, was that something when you were first learning to do all of this were you was that what you loved was there or is that something that over time the mastery that has come from well, i didn't get to do new hammers for a long time until i you know maybe 10 years in okay but what i do remember is the first time i was in a piano shop there were all these funny looking parts and tools and stuff laying around and i was fascinated by that i was fascinated by these uh, tools that couldn't be explained you know, I couldn't figure out what they did. Yeah. And little parts laying around on the workbenches and this the smell of the old musty pianos mm -hmm. and the finishes that were being sprayed. And you know, just the whole uh, culture of piano work, when it was brand new, it was really uh, imprinted right. on my, in my mind. And I, was, I still experience that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Walk into somebody's piano shop, and I, oh, yeah. I really feel it. Yeah, there's. Yeah. Uh, I I am a woodworker. Uh -huh. um, some of my best memories of my childhood are going over to my uncle Dave's house, and the adults are upstairs playing uh -huh. cards. And and I don't know why they let me loose. I mean, as an eight or nine year old table kid, saw down, yeah, down like the radial <laughs> arm saw and the table saw. Right. I mean, something that would never happen today. And I build uh -huh. a box, or I build, I just cut pieces. And what that's translated into as, is, as an adult, you know, I've built bookcases and generally where my mind goes when I need something is how, mm -hmm. can, I, how can I build this myself? Well, the most fun part of all of it is when you first set the tools up, you just make some practice cuts uh -huh. and, and you get to smell the, the sawdust and it all, see, where the, see where it all blows. You know, it all comes back. Sawdust blows around the room. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. the romance of that is something Certainly, that I think about. I guess what I'm. I guess what I'm getting at is, do you still cultivate that sense of the romance? And it certainly sounds like you absolutely. do. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad I'm not a pig farmer. 
you could have been. It was the same school. Yeah, that's right. It's right there. Right. Just, just one course option, one box in the yeah. wrong place. But, but you know, I, I know I, I share a shop with a, uh, with a cabinet maker. Mm-hmm. He says the same thing. Just, don't you love that smell? Yeah. And I think, well, you know, it's not good for your lungs, but I guess I do. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You, you develop tolerance uh-huh. over time. Enough of it builds up in there. Uh-huh. But, what is your, do you think about the fact that, um, so uh, this is, you'll be our 23rd episode of the uh-huh. podcast. We've had people on the podcast. We've had a lot of, um, we've had a lot of artists, poets, and musicians because there are a lot of the people that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a lot of, a lot of, um, I don't know, like, how would I say this? Like a lot of white collar, you know, desk job. Uh-huh. type of stuff and a lot of others not that too yeah. but um, I in another life in a couple of other lives um, would have just been a woodworker my whole life when I got a radio after 15 years when I was 30 years old I went and swung a hammer for two years because I just wanted to I wanted at the end of the day to have something to show for my work uh-huh. um, and that romance is still very strong there do you have any sense of your place? You said there are not that many people that do what you do, and there are only there's only one school that you mentioned that still does it. And a lot of these these um, trades and craftsmen, master craftsmen types of trades are are disappearing in the world. Do you have a sense of of that around you as you work? Well, what I see is that a lot of a lot of uh, craft people are being replaced by um, Home Depot and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and that's a craft too. So you know, a lot of craft people go to work at Rockler, and, yep. you know, woodcraft and places where they can make a, make something at least yeah. for their work. But I have to say th- that what I experience that's different, I think, maybe it's not different, but at least the way I feel about it, is that um, our work is about what's in the imagination. Hmm. Music is in between your ears, right? Now I know boat builders, well, yeah, the boat has to float, but when you go walk on a new boat that somebody just built, it stimulates your imagination. Yeah. Somebody builds a kitchen, yeah, you have to put pots and pans in it, but it's so beautiful that you just stand there and look at it in mm-hmm. awe. And what we do is, is about music, and music is very complex language. Uh, it's, it's the culture talking to its people, hmm. people communicating with each other in very subtle ways through music. And it's meant to be in your imagination. The whole purpose of it is to, right. to reach your imagination. So when I work on a piano, I, I can't just think of it as a machine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, uh, it's, it's, well, how do I say this? When I was a kid, you know, I would listen to my dad's Heathkit radio and listen to the funny little sounds that the airport would send out, and ding, 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 and, uh, 
And it stimulated my imagination. I started playing like I was on a spaceship. Or if I had some other little toy that made noises or that uh, had lights on it or something, mm -hmm. it, would, it would make me want to play with it. Well, you know what a pianist do? They play, right? Mm -hmm. So the sounds that this thing makes are meant to reach the imagination. And so I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about that. That's, that's, that's what I get up in the morning and go do. So try to make an instrument a, a part of your imagination. Yeah. How do you think about your work when you're not doing it? When I, you know, uh, I work in advertising a lot of the time. If I wake up and I'm going to work, I'm thinking, I'm generally thinking more than I want to about it because somebody's placing demands on me. When you're not there and, <laughs> right. you're, and you're not doing your thing, you're are thinking you, about how to get it all done, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I, you know, and I'm angry at like that that I don't get to play. Like, uh, how how do you think about your work when you're not doing it? Well, part of it is problem solving. Sometimes I'll have a problem to solve, and I'll be thinking about how I can make a little device, a little jig, a little something or other, a little tool mm -hmm. to fix something. And that's 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 a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, other times, it's like you say, it's, you know, how am I going to be in two places at the same time today? How am I going to get from here to there? How am I going to uh, smooth over this mistake that I made? Mm -hmm. um, how am I going to fix this broken thing? And, but, but I never, I never fear that. I always get up in the morning ready to go. I can't wait. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think of myself as very, very lucky. I, I don't dread going to work. When I was a kid and I played sports, I dreaded going to football practice. I hated that. Yeah. I dreaded it. I didn't want to do that. But I had to impress my friends or whatever. So I would get up and go. But oh, I just w couldn't wait for the for rain or something to make, cancel practice. I was the same. If it snows now, I still want to go to work. I want to drive <laughs> through the snow and get there. Yeah, you know. So I'm a really lucky guy because I, you know, I'm most of the way through my adult life, and at least career-wise, mm -hmm. and I still love it. Yeah, you've never seriously considered doing anything else. Well, yeah, I've considered doing other things, but I never considered quitting this. Right. <laughs> yeah. But there are things that could, I've could worked, fit around I, this. I've done some work towards some other things. Um, never amounted to much. You know, I, I, uh, I went to uh, mediation training, mm -hmm. domestic mediation. The tree falls in your driveway. Your right. neighbor's tree falls in your driveway. Who's going to pay for it? You can't them? solve the problem. Right. And I realized, you know, a lot of things about that. And... That, that's fun for people who are, are oriented that way, mm -hmm. um, but not for me. It's, it's, I'm never going to do that. Yeah. Um, for one thing, there's no work, but retired judges do it for free. Right. <laughs> but what, it, what is it about you, about your personality, about your approach to the world that makes you particularly either suited or good at what you do? Well, there's my background which, you know, as a kid in school, my, my parents put me through music, which was good, um, and kind of set me up. My grandfather was a uh, vaudeville musician and a repairman, okay. a musical instrument repairman. He fixed violins and guitars and all that. 
Um, so I have that kind of in my family. Um, that, but that personally, about me, mm -hmm. um, I'm not. How would you say, I, I think I'm an introvert in the sense that what recharges my batteries is being alone and working on things by myself. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not. I don't have a lot of stamina for social interaction. Um, if I'm working with a group of people, I get worn out. I just want to go away. Yeah. So. I, I like people, you know, I get along with people, but um, I have to have, I have to have that in doses. Yeah. I, you know, after I work on a piano and I get it all set up, I've worked all day on it and I love it. Then I want people to come and listen to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you welcome people in. Yeah. Yeah. Please come and listen yeah. to this. But uh, if I had to work all day in an office with other people doing their things, uh, drive me crazy. For for one thing, I guess I'm selfish and I want I want to do it my way. And uh, if I had to conform to everybody else's way all the time, I, I'm just not good at that. But but you do. I mean, you you are doing it your way is accomplishing what the pianist is is helping them accomplish their thing. So it's not entirely selfish because you're the work that you're doing in, in isolation is helping someone accomplish something very specific. There is a point to that, but they don't tell me how to do it. Right. And if they did, right. <laughs> there'd be trouble. They'd have to get somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I've, I have experienced that to the death mm -hmm. of clients. Clients wanting to tell, to tell me how, how to, to do, do things. Yeah. And um, they died before I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not proud of that, but um, I'm just really stubborn about that. Yeah. Well, I've you, always said, you know, you, you, I don't think I'm always right, but I always think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> and and over time, I think I don't. Maybe you were that way when you were younger. Maybe you weren't. But over time, the skill catches up to the ego or whatever yeah. it is that you know. But well, my older brother said I never took no for an answer. <laughs> there you go. But, but it, you know, I was, I was a private kid, and I could figure things out on my own. Mm -hmm. I wasn't much good at social, uh, how the world worked. I was, I was clueless. I was a terrible university student, because I just mm -hmm. didn't understand what all this stuff was for. Yeah. But when it came to fixing things, or building things, or understanding how things worked, on, on a certain level, I'm not an engineer, but... On a certain level, um, that's where I function best. Yeah. Um, you know, I could, I could fix broken alarm clocks, and and yeah. uh, I don't know. There, there's a lot more to that story that I haven't thought about too much. But um, on a, on a certain level, I'm I'm I work best by myself when I can have time to figure things out. You know, even even with pianos, I I go to a training program, and I'm there. And the instructor is trying to teach me something, and I'm staring into space, and I don't get it. Hmm. I don't get it until I go home and plot it out and set it out on the table and say, okay, now, what's this all about? Then I, then I can figure it out. At what would that be at this point in your career? What are you, what are you going to classes to learn at this point? Um, I went to, not 
not just this year, but maybe 10 years ago, I went to an action balancing okay. school on Martha's Vineyard with a brilliant engineer who devised a way to balance actions mm -hmm. uh, so that each key feels exactly the same as the next, mm -hmm. even though the hammers are all different weights. Right. Right. So, you know, it's brilliant. He's a brilliant man. Um, but he could look me in the eye and he can say, you see this formula, this is, uh, <laughs> uh, and I can't even repeat the equations, but, um, and he would look at me and he said, don't you get it? And I said, not yet. <laughs> I said, I don't understand you. <laughs> yeah. I explained it. It's so simple, but I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it looking him, looking him in the eye, but I got it the day I went home sure. and got alone by myself yeah. and figured it out. Yeah. That's just the way I think. I think that's true of a lot of a lot of craftsmen that I've worked with. I worked as a framer and a finished carpenter for a couple of years, like uh -huh. I was telling you. And there were guys that if I asked them, you know, what the formula was or to tell me how they thought about laying out a stair stringer, mm -hmm. they couldn't they couldn't do they it. They probably thought you were a real nuisance, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like just get out of my way and let me do it. Right. But like if you ask them to do it, and there's there's some serious geometry that's going on yeah. in there to calculate the rise uh -huh. and the run and then the distance and how Sine many steps. Sine and cosine. Yeah, and all of that. And, and it's, it's something that uh, they know how to do yeah. it. It's in them. Yeah, that's a good example. Like I had to build something with angles. Mm -hmm. I had never had geometry even in high school. But I had heard somewhere that sine or cosine or something like that had to do with matching up angles. So I got out a book and I figured it out and I built the damn thing and I, you know, yeah. I, st I don't even remember how I did it now, but I could figure that out. Right. It wasn't hard. I just had to put my mind to it. Yeah. It's kind of like figuring out a computer program. It seems intimidating until you just get in there. And yeah. I hate those things. Yeah. But if you just get in there, open it up, read it, take a look at it, it all makes sense if you just spend the time thinking about it. Well, and when you've got the application for it and mm -hmm. when you can see it. And I love your answer to that guy. He said, don't you understand it? And you didn't say no. You said, not yet. <laughs> Right. And that's perfect because uh -huh. that 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 was confidence that it'll come to me. I need to yeah. I need to find the proper place for it to sit yeah. in my understanding. Yeah. So you know, I feel like I'm I'm doing work at the top of a piano technician's career, mm -hmm. um, and I may never I may never uh, go do anything any better than what I'm doing right now, and that's pretty good. I like that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that sounds great, though, because the other way to say that is I am doing the best. Like, that's kind of like I may never do anything better. Like, but, but that's not I, for me to judge. No, know? but what I hear yeah. in you saying that is you're, you're doing great work. You're proud of your work. You have achieved through a, a lifetime of practice and application, a mastery that word is something that I'm kind of interested in because that word means different things to That's different That's perception. That's your perception of what I do. But would you say it's untrue? I, I don't know. It's not, it's not the way I think about it. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm mastered, I've mastered anything. I think I'm still working on everything. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, I, you know, I may think that I do it better than the last guy. Mm -hmm. Of course, time has past since the last guy worked on it <laughs> right you know and and the next guy may think he did it better than me yeah but i guess you know it all boils down to whether they call you right if they call you and ask you to do the job phone still you win. right <laughs> right you you you've you've done it you got the job you do the yeah. work you get the money yeah um 
and and what 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 it works for me to the way it works for me to think about it is is not that I get the most work or make the most money or do that, but the way I judge it is I, I get to do the best work. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm the best, but I get to do the most, the work that's the most enjoyable, the yeah. most rewarding. Yeah. Um, at least from the way I imagined it. Sure. You know, what, what, what I had in my mind is now in my hands. Yeah. And I get to do that work. And that's... Uh, that's where I am. I'm not getting more and more work because I couldn't do any more work. Yeah. But I'm getting better and better work. Yeah. More and more enjoyable work. So that's 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 been my goal, and that's where I'm where I'm going. Yeah. And I love just talking to you. I mean, it's apparent that you care deeply about it. It's apparent that you think deeply about it, um, and the relationships between the work that you do and how they impact the people that you, that you come across. Um, are, you, are you a musician yourself? Do you, do you play? In a way, I have played, uh, I've played gigs as a kind of a singer-songwriter. Okay. Um, I've written lots of songs mm-hmm. and performed them sometimes, occasionally for audiences, real audiences. On the piano? On guitar. Okay. Acoustic guitar. All right. Um, Kind of a '70s singer-songwriter All right. type. There's not much much of a market for that. I went I went out. Tell me about that. I went out to Nashville <laughs> and I, I was uh, walking down Broadway on a, on a night nighttime, uh-huh. and uh, there was a country band in every storefront yeah. for mi- for a mile, right? And, it, and the loud music blasting out of every storefront. And then I went down a side street and I saw a singer-songwriter inside the window and there was nobody in there listening to it nobody yep and I thought okay this is what I do <laughs> this is this is my kind of music no, I know. nobody's listening yeah. I can read that writing on the wall yep. and yeah but I, I played right down the street here mm-hmm. um, for three years um, every week and I did it because it, it kind of brought back where I thought I was going when I was a kid you know mm. And and uh, I kind of proved to myself that I could do that again. Yeah. And it also proved to me that nobody was listening, <laughs> and that uh, there were very few people who ever came to hear it. Yeah. And but you know I go do a piano job for an orchestra and two thousand people show up. Right. Three and nights it, in a row. Uh, yeah, and it happens because of you know in no small part because of the work that you're doing. Everybody doing their jobs. Yeah. Put it, they put it all together. They have a great show. It's fantastic. I, I sit in the audience and just love every second of it. Hmm. Um, so, Can you detach when you're hearing that? Are you listening to the music or are you listening to the piano? I just listen to the music now. Okay. There, there was a time when I couldn't sit still because yeah. <laughs> I was afraid the pedals were going to fall off. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, that never happens. There was one time when um, I wasn't even there. I just heard about it later that pedals didn't work. Oh. But it was... a a terrible night. Yeah. Um, not just for that. It was, it was the night my father died, and oh, I had to leave. No. I had to leave the, uh, the show. I, I had to leave before the show started. Uh huh. And it was a big confusion before the show started because the power went out, and they had to move the location of the concert, and uh, and they had to ship the piano from one place to another. And when After I got you. there, the pedals wouldn't work. Okay. And uh, 
I got a phone call. <laughs> but uh, that was that was just once. That, yeah. I don't think I've ever even had a string break during a concert, and we're all always so scared of that. Yeah. We all carry our strings around with us, but I've never had to fix a broken string during yeah. a concert. Um, occasionally, I've had to tune something at intermission, uh -huh. but uh, I haven't done that in years either. So, really, I just enjoy the show. Yeah. And, uh, boy, the shows can be really good, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, just the idea that you, you had a specific set of interests. It's funny because you said that your, your grandfather was a vaudeville musician yeah. and, uh, and worked on instruments. I've still got pictures of him in his getup, you know? Oh, that's his fantastic. His straw hat and his banjo. But just that, that, um, that in your lineage there, there was somebody who made at least part of their living working on instruments. Mm -hmm. And so when the idea comes along, when the flyer comes along for the school in Indiana or in Iowa, you have a, you have a context that that's actually something somebody can do, yeah. which maybe is the difference between saying, maybe I'll do this and maybe I won't. Yeah. And, and, and you, on a, on a lark or what seems like a lark, choose this thing that, that obviously you love, that you get deep satisfaction from doing and could have bowed to the pressures of something else and done something that didn't suit your personality and that didn't allow you to do something that's so clearly aligned with both your personality and your skills. It's a really beautiful thing yeah. to hear. But, you know, learning to tune doesn't come overnight mm -hmm. and it's not emotionally easy. Um, and I, I noticed partly from my own experience and partly from people I was teaching that there comes a crisis moment hmm. when they think they're never going to get it and hmm. they want to quit. I remember trying to tune a piano in a lady's living room and feeling like I was never going to get it done. And I had just seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> And the big Indian guy threw something through the chair, I think, through the window uh -huh. and jumped through the window and ran away. I was just about to throw my <laughs> tools right through that window uh. and run away. I realized I wasn't going to get anywhere. There's nowhere to go. But um, I saw this with tuning students. Even when I worked at Baldwin, I was teaching tuning. And there would be a crisis moment where they would want to quit. And I would say, don't quit now because tomorrow... You're going you're you're to right understand there. it. Yeah, you're right And that's there. exactly what happened. Hmm. The next day, they would say, yesterday it was so weird. Today, I understand it. Yeah. Yesterday, I couldn't get it. And it was like something clicked. And, and I see this in just about all, all students who learn to tune and, and myself. Um, so there is that, that curve that mm -hmm. we go through. Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, I went to school, but I didn't learn how to tune there. I learned how to tune later when I got a loan. Right. Um, and I learned how to tune after lots and lots of criticism mm. of my tuning uh, because it wasn't any good yet. Mm -hmm. And people holding me to the fire and saying, if you want to do this for a living, you got to get there, buddy. And uh, it took a long, long time. Why didn't you give up? How long do I have to answer that question? <laughs> as long as you want. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know I if there's a no big answer. I have no idea why I, I didn't give up. Maybe because I didn't know how to do anything else. Yeah. Maybe because I felt like I had invested so much in it already. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe I just didn't care what anybody thought. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'll have to go think about that for a couple of years. <laughs> let, let me know when you find out. I mean, yeah. it just seems like there's, there, uh, you know, that's a metaphor for life. Like, uh -huh. right. there's all these things that maybe if you stick it out one day longer, you mm -hmm. have that breakthrough. I remember, I mean, we're talking about music. So uh, when I was really trying to become a better guitarist, one of the things that I realized about myself is I would play a lick or I would play a chord progression or I'd play something that I just could not get my brain around. And I learned over time that if I, if I practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced, didn't matter whether I got it, a lot of times I'd go to bed and I'd wake up the next day able to play it. Mm -hmm, like right. the, the brain keeps learning yeah. after you stop and it I'd, keeps... That's how I learned music theory. Yeah. So I, what, what little I know, I learned... Um, by thinking about it when mm -hmm. nobody else was around and when I didn't have a piano and when, yeah. you know, I'd lock myself in the room and figure it out. Yeah. I'm taking dancing lessons now. You are? Yeah. This, and I'm going through this again. Ballroom dancing? Yeah, or? ballroom dancing. I love it. I, I, you know, I was almost 60 years old when I took my first lesson. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I am the worst dancer on the planet. I dance like a giraffe on roller skates. <laughs> I tell my teacher I look like a farmer dancing. Is there anything I can do to dance. look like a dancer dancing? <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it's the same thing. It's that, you know, am I going to give up? Or am I going to just stick with it until it starts to feel better? There you go. I don't know. But that's, you know, I stuck the tuning thing out. Yeah. I didn't stick the music thing out. Mm -hmm. I gave up on that. I just wasn't getting anywhere and I felt like I was spinning my wheels so I went on to something else yeah but uh, the, uh, the the piano work thing I, I didn't give up and and uh, I, I guess what I feel like now is uh, uh, I've learned that there's st still a whole world of things to learn and every time I learn something new about it it's a lot of fun yeah and uh, and I'm doing work that you know is very satisfying to do it's not without its own crises. You know, every now and then something goes wrong, like yesterday. And, uh, but I, you know, I don't take it personally anymore. I just get up and try to fix it. Keep going. Yeah. Yep. Well, I sure appreciate you talking with us about it. It's been a joy to me just to hear the love that you have for it and the satisfaction. And, and I don't know, it's interesting to talk to. I do talk to a lot of people who are in the first halves of their careers uh -huh. or in the middle of their careers. You've been doing this for a while and the perspective that you lend to it is is welcome. Well, thank you. It's uh, interesting it what you to do too. I'd like to hear more about that. Well, we'll do, we'll do another episode. All right. We'll switch the mics around. Okay. Nevin, thanks a lot. Thank Appreciate you very much. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Urban Artifact, a craft beer brewery, taproom, bar, and live music venue located in a gorgeous old church building at 1660 Blue Rock Street in Northside, Cincinnati, Ohio. Open every day of the week, Urban Artifact specializes in delicious tart and wild beers, and they do have something for everyone no matter what you're into. Huge thanks to Tyler and the staff of Urban Artifact. We contacted them at the last minute and asked if we could record this episode, and they didn't flinch, didn't hesitate, invited us in, and took great care of us. So visit their website, artifactbeer.com, for more information. But most importantly, stop by Urban Artifact, try their amazing beers, and when you do, tell them the distiller sent you. We will definitely be back for good beer, but also uh, for future episodes of the podcast. 
And thanks again so much to Nevin Essex. You can probably hear it in the conversation, but I personally love, really love to talk with craftsmen like Nevin. He was incredibly generous to share an hour with us when he really should have been on the road to Nashville. And the more we talked, the more his love for his work came through. You can learn more about Nevin's work. Maybe more importantly, you can contact and hire Nevin through his website at nevinessex.com. And uh, we will link there from the distillerpodcast.com. Make it easy for you. And as a special treat, filmmaker Phil Mastman recently made a short film about Nevin. We have linked to that film on our website as well. That's at thedistillerpodcast.com. So don't, don't forget to check that out. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson, with co-production and booking from Terry Heist. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan, and our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. Please click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes are released. And if you like what we're doing, please do spread the word. Like and share our posts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen. That's incredibly important to us. Don't forget... You can listen, download every episode of The Distiller, and find information, including links, photos of the guests, and a map of all our show locations, and get in touch with us at thedistillerpodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us by email, mail at thedistillerpodcast.com, to tell us who you think should be on the show to talk about their search for meaningful work or where you think we should record the show. So please do drop us a line, whether by email, on the website, or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We always love to hear from you. So until next time, thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.